0: All right, you can turn to Song of Solomon, chapter 4. I'm going to take this off. I'm going to end up getting sweaty. So, this is one of those sections in the book that makes people get really nervous about teaching it. This is one of those sections in the book where people are like, this is too much. This is too much. This is not the kind of thing that we should be teaching in church. This isn't the kind of thing that we talk about in the church. This is one of those passages that makes people really uncomfortable. And a couple of times when we get to some of those parts where it's uncomfortable, I'm going to cop out and I'm going to read quotes from other guys rather than make quotes myself because it just makes it a whole lot easier to deflect to what other people have already said. So just to preface, I'm really excited to know what your conversations are like in community group this week especially for ours when we're walking around trick-or-treating, talking about Song of Solomon, right? That's going to be awesome. So up to this point, we've been following our couple's relationship. You have this king, and you have this country girl who really doesn't feel super confident. She's, she doesn't understand why this king would love her as much as he does, but he keeps speaking all of these words to her, telling her how he feels about her. And over time, we've seen her opening up more and more and becoming more and more confident because she knows her king loves her. And their relationship kept kind of reaching these boiling points where they're just like, we just want to be together, but now's not the time, right? And we keep seeing her, her saying, reminding herself and her friends, do not awake in love until it pleases. Like, this is not the right time. It is not time for us to go all in on this yet. There are still some barriers. Until last week, when we got to the wedding, And he made this huge show of just how much he loves her. He brought an army. He brought brought all kinds of gifts. He brought all sorts of elaborate chariots and all of these things. And he showed up and he said, you're coming with me. You're going to be my wife now. We're going to be together. And so today we're talking about the joy of consummation. That's the safe church word. And yes, I mean sex. That's the less... That's the less uh, comfortable churchy word. So just to kind of preface, there are a bunch of different views that people have about the idea of sex. Some sinful, some good. And we're going to kind of navigate through a couple of those really quick early so that we can look at what the picture that Song of Solomon is going to give us as to what the biblical view of what sex within marriage should look like. For many people in our culture, in our world, sex is mostly about lust. Lust. It's about attraction and getting something that makes me feel good right now. And it is used sinfully outside of the ways in which God gave us sex to be enjoyed. For some, it's only about procreation. For some, it's only like, I think the whole idea is absolutely disgusting and terrifying. I just want to have kids. But a biblical view of sex is that it's about pleasure and joy. And this is what our focus today is. I'm going to read this quote God is pro sex when it is enjoyed his way and for his glory. Yes, God should be glorified when we engage in the act of sex. Now, preface this because I've said this up until this point. There was this whole do not awaken love until it pleases. The question keeps being when does it please? After our couple got married. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them together, they were married, he got, God kind of orchestrated the first wedding ceremony, said, you guys are a couple, I now see you guys as one. And that's the confines in which God is saying, this is a good thing. And we're going to talk about that as we go through today. But here's, here's the big point. It can be an act of worship when it takes place within marriage. And I would argue it should be an act of worship when it takes place within marriage. Because within marriage, the unity that's displayed with insects takes us back to the ideal that God established in the Garden of Eden. We talked about that a few weeks ago when Adam saw Eve in the Garden and there, when they, there was nothing in between them. When there was nothing to hide, there was no shame. And we read about how, how they, were, they were both naked and they were unashamed. How they were, That was the ideal. That was the perfect thing. And when... When, when we talk about sex inside of marriage, we see people demonstrating that same kind of unity, that same sense of unity that God desired when he created us, and he, and he gave us these relationships of husband and wife. So last week our couple got married, the king made a big old demonstration of just how much he loved her. He was really excited that they were going to get to marry. Now they finally get to be alone. That's where we're picking up today in chapter 4. They finally get, the the time to awaken love has come. So, the reaction that Solomon's going to have is not the first time that we've seen a reaction like this. I'm going to take us back to Genesis again. Because when God first created Adam, he had Adam name all the animals, everything in creation, and it keeps saying, but for Adam there was found no suitable mate. There was nobody for him, right? And so God God knocks Adam out, he takes takes a rib, for whatever reason, takes a rib, and he creates a woman out of this rib, right? Uh, and then when Adam wakes up, it says, and God brought the woman to the man. And what happens? Genesis two twenty three, He bursts into song. Literally. He sees the girl, and he just starts singing. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I always remember how... Reggie at Heritage would describe this interaction cuz he would always say why is it that she's called woman because when he first saw her whoa man <laughs> That's I always think of that though but like but I want to I want I want you to connect with the idea that that when he saw the person that God had created specifically for him he was overwhelmed he's like this is awesome I'm really excited I'm just going to sing about it. Kind of, kind of a, Think of your favorite musical. You see the moment, the, the note hits, and you just burst into song. That's kind of how, that's kind of how Adam feels. And Solomon's going to have a similar reaction to seeing his wife. So Nick's now going to read Song of Solomon, <laughs> chapter four. No, you don't want to read? It, it's a good, I'll, I'll read it. I joke because Nick keeps accidentally getting all the really awkward readings on Sunday night, but he's gotten really good at handling them. He just can't make eye contact with people after he reads them. You ready? I'm going to read Song of Solomon, chapter 4, just for you, Nick. We're going to go through the first verse of chapter 5. I'm just going to read the whole thing in one shot. It says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn hues that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies." "'Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, "'I will go away to the mountain of Myrrh and the hill of frankincense. "'You are altogether beautiful, my love. "'There is no flaw in you. "'Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. "'Come with me from Lebanon. "'Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, "'from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. "'You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride.' You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices. A garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. And then she says, Let my beloved come to his garden, And eat its choicest fruits. And then he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Everybody get all that? All right, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. The first thing I want you to notice is that three times at the very beginning, from the very beginning... He keeps reiterating, you are beautiful, you are beautiful, you are beautiful. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. When God gives us a spouse, he he doesn't give us a standard of beauty, he gives us a spouse. It's not like he's looking for a certain type, or this body type, or this kind of person, or a person with this color hair, or this person with this color eyes. He gives them a spouse, and your spouse is your standard of beauty. To him, she is the most beautiful, most flawless person he has ever seen. We don't really know what she looks like. We get some descriptions. But what we do know is that to him, there is nothing else that he could ever possibly want to look for. He is perfectly satisfied with the way that she looks. Here's, and here's an interesting thing. I got this from, I was reading a book on Song of Solomon that Matt Chandler wrote, and he mentions an interesting point. If you think about what people in this time wore, most of the time, they were wearing big, like, robes and, like, loose-fitting clothes. This is probably the first time he's ever actually seen his wife's figure. He wasn't basing it on her body type or the way that she was shaped, because he probably had no idea what that looked like because of the way that they were dressed. So so this reaction that he's having is, this is the first time I've seen you like this, and I am a fan. But he's a fan because she's the one that he's a fan of. She's the one that looks the way he wants because she is his wife, and that's all that he has eyes for. And that's such an important thing for us to note, especially now when we're always being bombarded with, this is the way you should look. This is the way you should dress. This is the way you should cut your hair. All of these things are the temptations that are thrown at us, and so we're taught you can have a type. You can have a look that you're going for. You can have a person in mind that is an ideal, and you're going to try to find somebody as close to that person. But that's not how God works. God gives you a wife or a husband. He does not give you a standard that the person you're looking for needs to meet with. Your standard of beauty is the spouse that God gives you. And if your spouse changes, your standard of beauty changes. Right? Like when you get married, you probably like 20 somethings. But 10 years into your marriage, you're probably into 30 somethings. And so on. He tells her that he loves the way she looks. Uh, women are often very verbal. And he knows this. And he's and and, and here's the thing: he's patient in this. And he just says things to her. He says things he loves about her. He talks about her before anything becomes physical. Before he, he doesn't just jump in and say, all right, here we go. He says, I want to tell you about how much I like you. I want to tell you how good you look to me. I want to build you up and encourage you and show you again. This, is how, this has been the way he's been the whole book up to this point. He keeps telling her. He keeps reiterating. I love you. I love the way you look. I love everything about you. He keeps building her up with these words that are trying to lock in just how much he loves her. Because we know she started very timid, not very confident, and he doesn't stop once he said those things before. We've heard him say many of these things. We're going to hear him say many of these things again. He never never loses sight of her need to be reminded of just how much he loves her and just how into her he is. He continues to show her this, this passionate sense of love that he has for her. So, let's just go through a couple of these metaphors that he uses so we can kind of understand a little bit of what it is he's saying. Because some of these sound kind of weird at the surface. I saw somebody did a cartoon one time of what this girl must look like with like lots of sheep in her mouth and you know, all these crazy things that he's describing. But, but at first, he says, your eyes are doves. And he goes back to her eyes several times. He's basically saying, I am... I am caught up in your eyes. And doves are a picture of purity and peace. He's saying, you just seem so at peace, so like you're in the right place, so where God wants you to be. You're just satisfied. You're not, you're not scared. You can tell people's emotions by the look in their eyes. I remember one time when I was looking at the uh, requirements to audition for the Blue Man Group. I wasn't ever going to. I'm not tall enough. But they say in the requirements, you have to be able to communicate a wide, I don't remember exactly, a wider range of emotions with only the use of your eyes. And if you're familiar with the Blue Man Group, they don't move their face, they don't smile, they don't do anything except look at you with their eyes, and they have to be able to tell you if they're frustrated, happy, sad, whatever it is, just with their eyes. But but we can do that, which is why we tend to make eye contact with people, because we can kind of see what it is that they're thinking based on Their eyes. And so he starts with her eyes. He says, I see your eyes. You're you're at peace. You're comfortable. You know you're where you're supposed to be. You're not not terrified. You're not scared. You're not angry. She seems relaxed and at peace, which he notices because she lets her hair down, right? This, This might also be the first time he's seen her hair like down and known how long her hair is. And maybe he's reacting to, you have really long, pretty hair. I like your hair. Maybe she's had it up all this time. I mean, we know it's hot, we know she used to work in the fields, she probably had her hair up in some sort of like, I'm at work bun kind of thing, right? So she's letting her hair down, she's, she's ready to relax, she's not, she's not at work, she's not, she's not trying to keep her hair all styled up, she's ready to let it go. She has all her teeth, and he thinks that's really neat, right? You've got all your teeth, they're really white. That's not common. I really like that you have all your teeth. And then he talks about her mouth, and I'm gonna read a quote. I'm gonna read a quote, because quotes. Her mouth is a fertile oasis with lovely words flowing out of it. That part's not uncomfortable. Not to mention possible heavy wet kissing. Right? We just sang How He Loves. David Crowder made that song famous. And when you get to the bridge, David Crowder sings, heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss. What was the guy's name who wrote the song? It was uh, John Mark Mark McMillan. When he wrote the song, he wrote it, heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss. Just a little trivia for you. But we see him describing her mouth and how much he wants to kiss it. right? Later on, in verse 11... Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. That's not subtle. You get the idea what he's going for there. He sees her. He wants to kiss her. He wants to be close to her. She apparently has a really, really long neck. But he likes long necks because he likes her. Because he says, your, your neck is like a tower. And you can fit lots of necklaces on that thing. But that's cool. I like that. I'm going to read a quote for this next one. Again, because quotes. By the way, this is the primary uh, book that I've been using, the commentary that I've been using to study for this. It's really, really good. Daniel Aiken is awesome. You guys should look into him. Um, so I'm going to read uh, the paragraph that he writes on, on a couple of these verses. Verses 5 and 6 draw attention to Shulamite's breasts. First, they are compared to two fawns, twins of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. And then he describes what he's saying. He's saying they're soft and attractive, tender and delicate, making her husband want to touch and caress them gently. Secondly, he describes or names them as two mountains. One he calls the Mountain of Myrrh, and the other he calls the Hill of Frankincense. This is in the Bible, guys. Both spices were expensive and used as perfume for the body and the marriage bed. The senses of sight and smell are aroused. So enraptured is Solomon that he desires to make love to his wife all night long. Because he says, before the day breaks and the shadows flee. He's like, I'm all in for this. I'm really excited. I don't want, I don't want to waste a minute. I don't, want to, I don't want to just move on. I want to enjoy this time with you. We finally get to be alone. So he goes through all these descriptions. He's saying, I like this about you. 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 Again, just reminding her, encouraging her. I love you just the way you are. Look, you look like this. Your eyes look like this. Your neck looks like this. Your teeth look like this. I like these things because they are you, and I love you. But after all of that description of the way she looks to him, in verse 9 he says, you've captured my heart my sister, my bride. And he calls her his sister a couple of times because their relationship isn't just about you are my wife and we do these things because we're married. It's you're not just, you're not just my bride. You're like my friend. You're my family. Like I enjoy being around you. Their relationship is built on the friendship that they developed before they got married. When when she said, where are you? I want to see you. And he kind of playfully says, well, if you follow that trail, maybe you'll find me. Remember how flirtatious they were with each other at the very beginning? How playful they were? Their relationship is still that way. He still sees her as his friend. They actually enjoy being around each other. That's an important thing in a marriage, that you actually enjoy spending time together. That it's not just, well, we got married that many years ago and, well, we talk every now and then, but for the most part, we're super busy and we take care of the kids. And... They actually enjoy spending time together. And he's reminding her, you're still my friend. You're still my best friend. I still love to be around you. And so then he goes on this long description of all of these different, these different spices and herbs and these things that are super expensive, and he says that she's more valuable to him than all of these things. As nice as they are and as good as they smell. He, he's saying, he's saying, he's saying, we've got all of these oils and spices and stuff, and we smell it, but you're so much more valuable to me than all of those. And so he transitions back to that garden metaphor. He says, let's get away, let's leave the mountains, let's let's go get away, let's you and me go find some time to be together, and he transitions back to that garden metaphor. Let's go spend time in the garden. The garden. Union within the proper context of marriage takes them back to the Garden of Eden. It takes them back to that picture of perfect unity with nothing to hide behind, nothing to be afraid of, because you see each other for exactly who you are, and that's good. It's this perfect picture of redeemed oneness, which was not possible after the fall before Christ came and redeemed us. Christ's redemption makes marriage and and union within marriage a call back to the perfection that we had when we were in the garden and God God brought Adam and Eve together and he was like, yes, somebody for me. Our relationships and in fact, our sex lives within our marriage should be a perfect picture of redeemed relationships. So then these other voices enter in. It's at the end of verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, Eat friends and drink. Be drunk with love. Every other time that we've seen others listed as the voice in here, we've usually been talking about um, the girl's friends, her group of friends that are like, We like this guy. He's really cool. You should totally marry him. Right? A lot of people, and I tend to agree, think that this is a new voice speaking here. We think that this is God. This is God saying, He's kind of blessing what is happening. It's described that when when a man and woman get married, that there's also a portion of the Holy Spirit that's also kind of married with them. Like you get as one, like you have the Holy Spirit, you get married, but now you kind of have the Holy Spirit united with you in your marriage, which is why it's such a big deal that we believe that, that divorce really should not be a thing. Because because what God, God makes one, he says, let no man separate. Right? And so God is present with them in this moment in the bedroom. He's saying, I am all for this. You guys are married. You guys are together. This is a good thing. I am encouraging this. He's like, go. Be drunk with love. God is blessing this moment. He's blessing this union. He's blessing this marriage. Which is why we can say, that within marriage, sex truly is an act of worship. Because you are demonstrating the kind of oneness, the same kind of oneness that God created when he, when he redeemed all of us and He makes us a family and He unites us as one with Jesus. In a similar fashion, we are modeling the same kind of oneness in our married relationships. So we worship God through the way that we are married together. but here's the cool thing I want to kind of bring this bring this back to the big picture metaphor for where we're going because not all of us are married so not all of us can connect to this in like a super practical way yeah I could make this whole sermon about now guys learn learn the kinds of things that he's saying and the ways he's talking to his wife yes do that Girls, look at the way that she's making herself available to him in this way and that she's unashamedly presenting herself to him and she's not holding back and using it as some sort of a bargaining chip. Yes, that is true as well. But I want us as the church to understand what this can also be a picture for because all of this happens at the very beginning when Solomon sees his wife and he bursts into song because he loves her so much. it fills her with the confidence that she so desperately lacked at the very beginning that she feels safe and free. So just like Adam, just like Solomon, we have a God who sings songs over us because he so loves us, because he so loves his church. Through his son's sacrifice, he's brought us Back to the garden. He's brought us back to this place of of unashamed unity. And he sings songs over us about that. This is Zephaniah 3 15 and 17. It says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will, this is it, this is it. Just listen to this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God sings about his love for us over us. This is an amazing thought that, that not, not just that he redeems us so that we can be part of his family to make much of him, but he, makes, he, he, he loves us and he wants to be with us and he wants to tell us about it. He... If you've ever had a broken relationship where you feel like this person has abandoned me and left me, that can be a terrifying thing to think of entering into a relationship with somebody. Or entering into a relationship with a group of people thinking, are these people going to leave me? Are these people going to reject me? Are these people going to hate me and throw me out? And honestly, we're all sinners. It's still going to probably happen because we're still broken. But our God has taken away permanently the judgments against us, cleared away our enemies. He's a mighty one who will save, who loves us so much that he rejoices that he gets to be our God and he gets to love us. This is an amazing, amazing thought and it's not one that I think we necessarily feel all the time. It's hard to be comfortable thinking God loves me the way that Solomon loves his wife. Like, like he doesn't leave anything open. He's like, you trust that he actually loves this girl. And sometimes it's hard for us to learn to trust that God actually loves us. As well, but, but man, when I hear these words, he will rejoice, like rejoice over us with gladness. And God is the only one who can love us so perfectly that we don't have to lose confidence that he's going to abandon us. And we see that once he's finished with once Solomon has finished saying all of these words she like i said feels safe and free to respond in the only way that makes sense in that moment which is why i want us as the church to feel safe and free to worship god in the only way that makes sense with everything that we've got because we're so confident that we understand that he loves us so deeply so passionately, that he would go to whatever length it takes to save us, even if that means sending his own son to die. So we're going to try something. A couple weeks ago, I made you all really uncomfortable by making you sit really close to each other. We're going to try something else this week. We've just seen how Solomon... Was so excited to get to say all of these things that he loved about his wife out loud to her. I'm kind of stealing this from Louis Giglio, who used to do this at passion conferences. He'd say, Everybody stand up, and we're going to pray, and I want you to pray out loud, all of you. All of you are going to pray out loud at the same time. You're not talking to me, you're not talking to the person next to you, you're talking to God. And I'm going to kind of give you a prompt for your prayer. Our God is amazing. And he loves us. And as a response to that, I want us, those of us who are saved, to stand in just a second. And we're going to pray out loud. We're going to turn on the pads so it's not like dead silence in here. And I want us to just pray out loud and tell God things that we love about him. They can be simple things. They can be really elaborate things. They can be things specific to your life that he has done for you. But I want us, and this is going to feel weird. I'm going to be honest. This is going to feel weird really uncomfortable at first, but I want us as the church to feel comfortable expressing our love for God openly and in front of the rest of the church because everybody else is going to be in this with us, but it's not about the person that you're standing next to. It's about, it's about you telling God who he is and how amazing he is to you, okay? So I'm going to pray And then we're going to try this. And I think this could be really cool. Let's pray real quick. God, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you for the way that you went to such great lengths to make us your family. God, I pray that you would right now open our hearts to see just how amazing your love for us actually is. And God, open our eyes to see how glorious and beautiful you are. And God, I just pray that right now you would, you would supply the words to each of us that we can just declare back to you. That you would give us the words that you desire to hear this church in this moment say back to you. Describe, describe you for your glory and your beauty and your power and all of these things that we love about you. God, reveal in our hearts right now the things that we love about you and give us the words to, to say right back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I said stand. You can sit. But if you want to stand, we're going to, some of us can, I don't care. I don't want to force you into a particular posture. But let's just take a few minutes and seriously, out loud, tell God how we feel about him. And then in just a couple minutes, I'll close us in prayer and then we'll sing some songs. Does that sound cool? So if you want to stand, let's stand. If you want to sit, you can sit. But just take some time and tell God how amazing he is.